She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch, an X-Files adjacent podcast. Fire in the sky. Fire in the Sky was written by Tracy Torme, based on Travis Walton's 1978 book, The Walton Experience. Torme was a writer on 19 episodes of Saturday Night Live from 1982 to 1983. From 1987 to 1989, he was a story editor and or writer on 28 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which I grew up watching. So that's pretty exciting. I feel like that's a pretty good show. He was the co-writer of the 1988 TV documentary, UFO Cover-Up Live, which I have no ooh. idea what that was, but it sounds good. I would have watched it. it um, ooh. They actually talk about that in season two of Strange Arrivals. Okay, they actually have cool. audio excerpts from it. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. In 1991, Torme co-wrote the screenplay with Barry Oringer for the two-episode miniseries Intruders, based on the book of the same name by Bud Hopkins. Whoa, I'm starting to notice a trend here. Yeah. Mm. He also co-created Sliders, which aired from 1995 to 2000 with Robert K. Weiss, and he was the executive producer of the series. Yeah, I like Sliders. I, I watched Sliders, too. I watched the first few seasons. I think, yeah. I think I stopped watching it when they switched to sci-fi. Okay. I, I remember watching Sliders. I remember my brothers watching it. I don't have a strong memory of much of the show, but I remember watching it. So I did see some of it. I don't know. I wasn't yeah. super invested, but yeah. he also wrote the song Cry Like a Man, which was sung by Rembrandt Crying Man Brown in Sliders. So if you okay. remember the first episode, Rembrandt is like a like like he had like one hit, kind of one hit wonder dude. And that was his thing. He was the crying man, Rembrandt Crying Man Brown. But he wrote that song. And that kind of makes sense when you realize that, yes, Mel Torme is Tracy Torme's dad. Uh, Okay. Gotcha. There's not a lot of Torme's that I'm aware of. And so I was kind of like, oh, and then, yeah, Mel Torme is his dad. So just a note, you will hear us refer to Travis Walton as being 22 in this episode. Contemporary reports list Travis Walton as being 22. But if you look him up on the internet, you will find two birth dates for him. The dates are completely different. One is in 1957 and one is in 1953. And like the months are different and so are the days. Skeptoid refers to him as a teenager in their episode 94. And if you use the later date, that would be true. But everything I've looked at says he was 22 at the time. So... He was born in 1953, not in 1957, as will sometimes appear on the Internet. And then also, I mentioned that we weren't sure where this was shot. Well, like a dumbass, I then watched the credits again, (laughs) and it tells you where the movie is shot. It was shot in Roseburg in Oakland, Oregon, Okay, which is in the lower third of Oregon. So, so it was kind of Pacific Northwest forest, and that's why it looked. Yeah. In the episode, we talk about like, I mean, we thought it was Vancouver, but... It actually was in Oregon. So mm, good yeah. to know. Yeah. Just sometimes just look at the credits. It'll tell you. So <laughs> no, I'm yeah. the worst. I never watch the credits. So I really should. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So I just want to get that correction out there for people. So there you go. Fire in the Sky was directed by Robert Lieberman, and he has a decent number of films and television directing credits, including one episode of The X Files 
which will be in season seven. It's season seven, episode five, Rush. The film stars D.B. Sweeney as Travis Walton. He's got one of those names that like, I thought he was in a bunch of stuff and I looked it up and he's not really in a bunch of yeah, anything. Yeah, I know. Because I definitely, the name is so familiar, but then he's not like in a ton of stuff either. So no, I think, I think this was his big thing, honestly. Yeah, probably. So, yeah. He does play a priest in one episode of Leverage. Yay. I love Leverage. Corey finally gets a leverage. A finally leverage credit. Yay. Finally gets to leverage in a leverage credit. Yes. <laughs> probably as X-Files gets later too, there'll probably be more crossover there. Probably. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He also was the voice of grown-up Aang in The Legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. So, yes. We have Robert Patrick, who plays Mike Rogers. And, of course, Robert Patrick is the T-1000 for Terminator 2, Judgment Day. He will also be Agent John Doggett in the X-Files. And then he was also Jackson Hervaux on True Blood. And Tori notes he was in one episode of Psych. He was. I looked it up, and now I forget which one it was. But, yeah, he was. Yeah. And, interestingly enough, Craig Sheffer, who plays Alan Dallas, was in a season four episode of Psych. And that's yeah. almost like the only thing I really, I mean, he had other credits, but like that's all that mm-hmm. stood out because we like to point out Psych. I like so. Psych. He was in a very Juliet episode. That's the name of the episode. He played a federal marshal who shot his partner and then framed the criminal that they were monitoring for oh. the death. And Sean figures it out when he tracks Juliet's college boyfriend to witness protection Gets him out of witness protection. And this is the guy who like found the criminal standing over the body. And so then Sean figures out that it was actually. The whole purpose of the witness protection program. Well, Sean is a fake psychic who's very good at doing his job. Um, And he, anyway, he figures out that the federal marshal actually is the one who killed his partner. Yeah. Well, fake psychic. I thought it was like criminal psychology like no so it's psych and like they they named their their psychic detective (sighs) agency psych because sean isn't a real psychic and nobody gets it he's he's that makes a whole that yeah that that opens up a whole new realm of why you are interested in okay gotcha gotcha yeah it's it's funny it's a funny procedural okay all right um but yeah he plays basically a douchebag federal marshal who killed his partner so that's who he plays yeah yeah yeah, and obviously, I've never seen an episode of Psych before. I no, no idea. <laughs> clearly not. If you don't yeah. know that Sean Spencer is a lying liar who lies, but he's very good at being yeah. a detective. No, I just so. assumed like criminal psychologist kind of thing. Like he was nope. <laughs> like a behavioral dude who was kind of quirky or something. Okay, nope. oh, all right, all right, psychic. Well, that, that Santa Barbara, California. More interesting. So yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. And then we got Peter Berg, who plays David Whitlock who looks super familiar and yet he has almost no other credits <laughs> that really were anything. He was the director of Hancock though, the okay. Will Smith superhero movie. So interesting, but he looks super familiar. He's kind of got a little bit of a Matthew Modine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, going yeah. On a little bit, especially with the glasses, like from full metal jacket, Matthew Modine has those circular glasses. Mm-hmm. Kinda, I think he's kind of got that feel. Yeah, um, he does. He definitely like, I feel like the entire cast of this looks super familiar to me. And then I went to look them all up and I'm like, literally the only person that I've seen recently is Craig Schaefer in Psych. Like everyone else, I'm like, I don't even oh. know that I've seen them in things really. I mean, obviously yeah. I saw that guy in Leverage, but I don't even remember what episode that yeah. was. Or- well, the next person is maybe a little more, I mean, obviously Robert Patrick, although 
I honestly, if I had not known it was him, I probably would have spent the whole movie going like, who is that? I know uh-huh. that guy. I know that guy. Yeah. I know that guy. But Henry Thomas plays Greg Hayes. And Henry Thomas, you might know as Elliot from E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Mm. Yeah. So we're getting a little of that kind of action going on with the casting here. He was also Ishmael in the 1998 two-episode miniseries of Moby Dick, which I remember watching when it aired, which starred Patrick Stewart as Ahab. And then also had Gregory Peck as Father Maple. And of course, Gregory Peck played Ahab in the classic 1956 version, which was written by Ray Bradbury and directed by John Huston. Nice. Yeah, I think I watched that in English class. I don't know. I'm making that up. Yeah. And we recently had an episode come out called Quagmire that Moby Dick comes up in maybe more than it needs to. So, yeah. (laughs) Scully has a thing with that book. So it's just, yeah, she she really does. does. Yeah. We have Bradley Gregg as Bobby Cogdill, and that's pretty uh, he does. He's another one of those people who looks really super familiar, and I don't really have any credit mm-hmm. for him. James Garner plays Lieutenant Frank Waters. James Garner is probably best known as Brett Maverick from several series and at least one movie where he played Brett Maverick, or more likely, depending on your age, as Jim Rockford from The Rockford Files, especially spending a lot of time watching daytime television in mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s, which has like the most iconic theme song ever written, to be honest. Maybe maybe Sanford and Son is better and obviously the Super Friends, but The Rockford Files theme song written by Mike Post is definitely one of those things that you're like, yep, that's it. Mm-hmm. So we have Kathleen Wilholt, who plays Katie Rogers. We have Georgia Emmelin, who plays Dana Rogers. Katie is... Mike Rogers' wife, Dana, is Mike Rogers' sister and future wife of Travis Walton. Mm-hmm. We have Scott McDonald, who plays Dan Walton, Travis Walton's brother. And then we have Noble Willingham, who plays Sheriff Blake Davis, who I cannot compartmentalize from being the corrupt owner of the L.A. Stallions, Sheldon Marcone from the 1991 classic, The Last Boy Scout. So, so another one of those things where like I just attach a person to a character and cannot separate them from it. Mm-hmm. So the film was released on March 12th of 1993 and it has a running time of 109 minutes, mm-hmm. which is kind of a thing for what we've been watching lately. It's a very popular time. I think I last, well, Close Encounters was 117, mm-hmm. but Communion was 109 minutes also. So Yeah. Yeah. So we open with a very X Filesy scene of some otherworldly light appearing through the trees. And then we have the opening credits rolling along the side on the screen. And then one of those credits obviously tells that this is based on a true story. And then as the credits are rolling, the light kind of changes and intensifies. And at one point, it looks almost like it might actually be like a fire, like uh-huh. in the woods. And then we find out that actually it's the headlights of a pickup truck. Boom, it's like tearing through the hills. And there is some light behind it still, but I think that's supposed to be like the moon or something possibly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the truck is literally like off-roading and obviously being driven by someone who is like fleeing someone or something because they are like, (laughs) unlike Mulder who like plowed down an entire mountain full of trees in Little Green Men without anything happening, this truck does take some damage. The mirror gets knocked off. It slams into a tree at one point on the side, kind of skids and boom, back in, hits the tree, but gets some dents and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It eventually ends up joining the road. So it gets on like the real road and like runs a box truck off the road in doing so. And then at that point, we can kind of see that there's apparently like five people in the truck. It's, it's a, it's a four door pickup. So it's one of the larger pickups, although it's pretty old. 
It finally pulls up to civilization in the form of a small strip of buildings, including a bar cafe and it's radiator and steaming and the engine's kind of smoking. And we find out that it's a white mountains, Arizona in 1975. I have to say, uh, I forgot that this took place in Arizona. Like for some reason in my head, I always picture the Travis Walton story being somewhere in like Wisconsin or something. I don't know why. See, I in, in my head, I always think about it being in the Pacific Northwest. I think because of the woods. I maybe, think, maybe. And also and maybe the X-Files influence. Possibly. The X-Files always took yeah. place in the Northwest, but it was filmed in the Pacific Northwest, I just for so. some reason always remember it taking place in the Midwest somewhere. And I don't know why that is because clearly that is not what happened. But for some yeah. reason in my head that got jumbled. In a huge oversight, I did not look to see where this movie was actually filmed. Oh, I um, didn't look either. It may have possibly been filmed in Vancouver because it is the 90s. And it does so, look like very Vancouver-y woods for yeah, sure. Yeah, but I mean, you know, woods are kind of woods. Yeah, way, it's true. So, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So five men eventually leave the truck and they silently enter the tavern. And we can see they're obviously shaken. So something has happened. And there are several onlookers and people in the bar and they watch and they kind of exchange looks like, what's going on with these guys? And one asks the last one to enter, who's Mike, what's going on? And Mike doesn't say anything. So a woman comes up and tells the boys that the kitchen is closed. So no no luck getting a cheeseburger now. Mm-hmm. And she exchanges a look with Mike. And then she turns and goes back to the bar. And Mike tells the others, we're sticking to the story, no matter how rough it gets. Understand? Which mm. is suspicious. Yeah. yeah. So, and then we're now going to deviate from our standard summary style where we kind of go through the movie. The movie is not completely non-linear, but like the parts you really care about, like the alien shit, that actually happens mostly in flashbacks. So Mm -hmm. we're kind of just kind of going to roll through the plot. Mm -hmm. So as we move along, we find out that on November 5th, 1975 in Snowflake, Arizona, logger Travis Walton and his coworkers, Mike Rogers, Alan Dallas, Dave Whitlock, Greg Hayes, and Bobby Cogdill head to work in the White Mountains. When they're driving home that night, they come across some weird lights and it ends up being an unidentified flying object. Travis actually gets out of the truck and goes over to it. And the dudes are like, dude, get it back in the truck. Get it back in the truck. Like they're screaming or whatever. And he just is basically standing there like a doofus, honestly. And then he is struck by a beam of light. And it like hurls him back several feet and like is laying there and it looks basically like he's dead. So they think he's dead and they're obviously freaking out. Mm -hmm. And so they like just take off finally. Right. And then Rogers kind of finally comes to his senses, Mike Rogers. And he says, no, we got to go back for him. He makes everybody get out of the truck and just wait in the woods while he goes back to look for Travis. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, one person, Alan Dallas, is arguing like, are you crazy? We can't go back there. And he tells like, if you don't want to go, then get out. But then he makes everyone get out. And like David Whitlock wants to stay and go, but like Mike Rogers makes him get out. So they're all just standing like in the woods and like Mike Rogers takes off and goes to look for Travis. So, yeah, it's I got to say that whole part, like if I don't know if you've ever had like a stress dream where most of my stress dreams involve being in a car trying to get somewhere and the people that I am with impeding me in every way possible. I don't know why (laughs) that is my comment. I just like we're trying to get to the comic convention or trying to get to the hotel or trying to get wherever grocery store. I don't know. But for some reason, there's always just 
it's just really hard. And that's exactly what this scene reminded me of where he like gets out of the car and is just standing there like an idiot. And they're like, come on, get back in the car. I'm like, why? Oh, so stressful. (laughs) Yeah. And Rogers doesn't want to leave, but the other Mm-hmm. four are like yelling and screaming like let's get out of here get out of here and well, so he finally and none of them want to get out of the car to like check on him because they yeah. don't want to get zapped by the alien ship which yeah. fair right yeah so at first he doesn't want to leave then he's like kind of like he does it out of like panic i guess but then he like like i said he comes to his senses he decides to mm-hmm. go find him although he makes everybody get like he makes people get out and then goes off to find him by himself by himself suspicious yeah. suspicious yes but apparently he could not find travis anywhere and then he apparently picks everybody back up. So that's at least good. And then they make their way back to town. And then Rogers eventually makes a phone call. And we find out the loggers are met with skepticism by investigator Sheriff Blake Davis. Actually, Blake Davis isn't that skeptical. He's kind of on board with the UFO stuff. And then Lieutenant Frank Waters, who says he's with CIB, huh. which I'm not sure what that is. He's apparently from Montana. Interesting. I didn't catch that. But then also recently did some murders at the border that were solved. So I, I don't think he's like a federal marshal or something. Yeah, possibly. I got the impression he was some kind of federal agent. But yeah, I didn't. I'm yeah. not clear on exactly what his role But was. And then like he's lieutenant. But like at one point he does say CIB, which I do not criminal and investigation bureaus. We will find out again. This is based on a true story. Both the sheriff and Lieutenant Frank Waters are fictional characters. They do not actually exist. So (laughs) Sheriff Blake Davis and Lieutenant Frank Waters, not real people. So, yeah. I did like when Waters gets the call about the missing person things and like gets called on the investigation. I guess he's, I guess because he recently did the murders at the border. So he's in the area. Maybe that's why he gets the call because obviously he didn't drive from Montana, but at the end we find out he's going back to Montana. So don't know, but they did this thing where like, he's getting the call and then we see like these red lights come down over his windshield. He's like, Oh, <gasps> but it's actually just like the railroad arm. He stopped at a railroad crossing. That was kind of cool. I like that. Yeah, that was cool. Call back to close encounters too, a little bit with that. And then either I'm guessing that's gotta be how noble Willingham talks because he sounds exactly like Sheldon Marcone, which is not helping my compartmentalizing. Um, <laughs> so I'm guessing that's just how he talks. And not like, yeah, not probably. Like, like I, I only know one voice. So it's got to just be because he sounds exactly the same. Everything is the same. Sounds exactly like him. So, yeah. And then we basically learn that these are the people who were in the truck, which we already kind of mentioned. But there's Mike Rogers, who's 28 years old, and he's running a crew that for about a month has been working this government contract to clear brush from this particular area of the forest. Mm-hmm. And then the deputy gives us a rundown of the rest of the crew. There's David Whitlock. He's 26. He's a local boy who's active in his church. Greg Hayes, 17, is obviously the youngest one. He's a high school kid from Winslow. And he's pretty shaken up. So whatever happened, he's definitely the most like, there's Robert Codgill, who's 20. He's from Durango and he just joined the crew a week ago. So he's the new guy. And then there's Alan Dallas, who is 25. He's a drifter. He's been on the crew for just two weeks and he's kind of a bad apple. So he's kind of the bad boy. So oh. this feels like a breakdown of murder suspects, but it could also be the makeup of a boy band. <laughs> Just saying. Oh, okay. Either way, 
<laughs> Clearly, the deputy is a little. I mean, he knows who they are, but he's a little. Yeah. A little suspicious of what's yeah. going on here. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming he took all their information. Yes. So have, uh-huh. Yeah. Because we actually don't get a breakdown on Mike Rogers. 28 comes from the real Mike Rogers was 28 at the time this event allegedly occurred. So mm-hmm. I inserted that. The sheriff does say Mike Rogers has been running the crew for a month. They don't. We actually don't get his age anywhere in the movie, but that is pulled from real life. The rest of the stuff, they actually give the ages mm-hmm. of the movie. So. so Waters realizes there's a lot of tension between Dallas and Walton. And so that's interesting. And also Dallas has a criminal record. And because he suspects foul play, he's like, okay, these guys have some tension. He's going to use that to try and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And his belief that there was foul play quickly spreads to the rest of the town. And the loggers become social pariahs because Travis is missing at this point. And no one knows what happened, but they suspect that maybe they killed him or there was an accident and they're trying to cover it up. Yeah, because they do tell the story about the UFO, but of course, no one believes it. And so they assume that, like, well, you guys just killed him and left him there. Or for some reason, like, Dallas killed him. And for some reason, you guys are covering up for Dallas, even though Travis is your friend. So, right. Yeah. yeah we don't, so. they don't know what's going on, but they do not believe the UFO business. No, they don't think there were well, aliens involved. Yeah. So they have to wait till morning to do a search because they can, that way they can get them in. And plus, obviously, it's easier to search during the day. Right. Mm-hmm. So a large search party turns up and no sign of Travis anywhere. The loggers are then offered a chance to take a lie detector test. Dallas is initially hesitant, doesn't trust lie detectors. I mean, you shouldn't because they're fake. But, they are fake. Yes. Yeah. The loggers ultimately take a test in hopes of proving their innocence. However, Waters declares that the tests were inconclusive and that they will have to return the next day to retake them. Rogers is totally outraged at this. Like he declined and everyone else is like, yeah, we're not coming back. Blah, blah, blah. They all storm out. The test administrator then reveals to Sheriff Blake that with the exception of Dallas's, whose was really basically you could not read it. He was like, he was, he was like super jumpy. Something he was scared. Something was going on. Like his test is basically unreadable. Not that he was lying. Just, he was obviously super agitated. And yes. Because he's got a criminal record and he knows that lie detector tests are bullshit. So of course. Well, and also be- he's got a criminal record. There's a missing person. They're looking yeah. to pin it on somebody. Yeah. We he do knows get a, what's up. Yeah. We get a scene before this of like, you know, I know what's going to happen. You don't have to have a body to do murder charges. And at some point, y'all are going to turn on me because I have a criminal record and who's going to get busted for this. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and also in the flash, like we see a scene of them working in the forest before this supposedly occurred. And like he's kind of fucking with Travis with the chainsaw. And so that that looks bad, even though like they know he didn't kill him. It still doesn't look great. And so I'm sure like that's a thing. Like if someone mentions that, that's going to cause problems. So, yeah, he knows that there's all kinds of reasons. Though that that flashback is technically Mike Rogers telling the story to Lieutenant Waters. Right. And we find out later that Waters finds out that some of that story isn't true. Yeah, exactly. Because of a wound that Dallas has on his hand. And so, yeah, so. Yeah, we got some highly unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. And on top of it being a based on kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. yes. Anyway, so aside from that, though, the fact that, you know, Dallas's test was kind of unreadable. It does look like all the rest of them were telling the truth. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that doesn't seem like their tests are inconclusive at all. But surely 
the police and the authorities would never lie to suspects to get them to say something else. No. Well, and also like, cause even Rogers is like, well, like you said, one was inconclusive. What about the rest of ours? And like the dude giving the test is like, we can't discuss results. I know. Until we finish. Bullshit. bullshit. So, anyway. you know, yeah. because yeah, cause they know. So mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, but also lie detector test really don't prove anything. They yeah, prove pseudoscience. Or not. Yeah. yeah. It's pseudoscience. Yeah. 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 So five days later, Rogers receives a call from someone claiming to be Walton, which yeah, he's like, he really at first doesn't really believe it. He's at home and he's like, oh, but they drive out and like he brings Dana, his sister, and he brings Travis's brother mm-hmm. and they drive and, out and Whitlock too. Whitlock. Oh, also. yeah. Whitlock's in there yeah. too. Yeah, that's right. So they all go and they don't know exactly where he called from. He just said he was like at a gas station. So they kind of drive around and they do eventually find him in this like rural gas station and he's alive but he's naked and he's incredibly dehydrated and incoherent and so like he needs water he's just like he can't stop drinking water he's super dehydrated yeah, he can't and, speak at first he has to point to his mouth yeah mm-hmm. i don't know in the movie i don't remember because now it's been like a week and i've got the real story kind of confused in my head with what happens in the movie but I don't remember who calls in the ufologist. I don't know, but it is a ufologist who, after the story starts getting out around town, that like it's UFOs, that kind of stuff, and everyone starts like treating them like pariahs and whatever. It's the one who he belongs to a group called Afar, mm-hmm. which is like aerial something. I don't remember what it is. It's a fake, right? Probably supposed to be like MUFON or something like that. But he gives Rogers and Whitlock a card. And so one of them, I'm thinking maybe Whitlock, because Whitlock is like, he's here, he's here when he, they show up. So I okay, that would make yeah. sense. Cause yeah, they call him. But obviously in. one of those two did. So. Yeah. So they called him in and he starts to question Travis. But basically, Travis like is freaked out and can't answer. And they finally realize they need to take him to a hospital. So they let the ufologist guy like ask questions for a little bit and then like, okay, we're taking him to the hospital. Screw this. So they take him to the hospital. And, you know, obviously he gets fluids and probably some kind of nutrition and stuff like that because he's obviously been in the woods for or a spaceship for days. We don't know where he's been. So Mike Rogers visits Travis and he ends up telling him that he left him after he was struck by the light because they were panicked. Like they didn't know what had Mm -hmm. happened. They thought he was dead, but he did come back to get him. And so he turned the car around, tried to find him and couldn't find him anywhere. And Travis realizes they left him and he turns away from Mike, who blames the whole incident on Travis for getting out of the truck in the first place, which to be fair. Yeah. Come on, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Travis turns away. Like Travis doesn't say anything. He just like, well, he does say like, you left me? And he's mm-hmm. like, we thought you were dead, man. But like, I went back for you. And Travis just turns away. And then Mike is like, you son of a bitch. Why'd you get out of the truck? It's all your fault kind of thing. And then he's not supposed to be there anyway. He like snuck in at night to talk to Travis. Again, suspicious. And then like a nurse overhears them and he's kicked out. So mm-hmm. yeah. 
But then Travis is released from the hospital. Apparently, during his stay in the hospital, they couldn't like get all the dried blood out of his nose or around his eyes. Still got, like, dried blood around his nose and his no one had a sponge bath for Travis Walton. Yeah. I guess I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they cleaned up the scratches on his cheek, but like he still got like dried blood all caked in his nose, and then he's got like mm-hmm. some dried blood on the side of his eyes. I mean, his eyes are all black too from whatever. But yeah, they couldn't they couldn't clean that stuff off. I guess, but I don't know, whatever. Anyway, and then Tenant Waters sees him. And he expresses his doubts about the abduction. You know, he's like, welcome back. And he dismisses it merely as a hoax. He notes that Walton is now a celebrity because like some kids are like, can you sign this, Travis? Because they got the paper that says like, you know, he was abducted by aliens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he's just trying to profit from the tale. He believes that they faked everything. Maybe we don't know the reasons why, but he believes it's all a fake. So, Yep. And then they have a welcome home party for Travis. Dana sets it up and people bring all kinds of food. All everybody's there like, oh, Travis, yeah. Ooh. And this is like right after he comes back from the hospital. Like, same I day. know. Like, they, they leave the hospital. They stop at the store. Dana goes in the store and gets food, which I'm kind of wondering because like they keep talking about how they can't even like they don't have any money. Like no one has money. And yet like Rogers goes to a motel at one point, stays there for several days. And like Dana just going in. Maybe they have credit. I don't know. Anyway. But so Travis is in the car. Dana goes in the store, gets the groceries. And that's when Waters sees him after the kids get him to sign the paper. Like he's in the car and like this paper just gets slammed up against the window. And he's like, oh, and he rolls it down. And this kid's all like, can you sign this, Travis? So doesn't have an accent <laughs> like that. But anyway, and then Waters talks to him and says that. And then they leave and then they go to the party. So it's like right after he got out of the hospital. So he still like really has not said words almost at all to anybody. And then during the party, he has a mental breakdown. He's under the table. Dana tries to help him, but then syrup drips because he like jumps and hits the table. And then a thing of syrup falls over. And then as she's trying to get him, reaching out for him, we see the syrup slowly moving across the table. And then it goes over the edge and lands on his face. And he's like, ah, and then he has a big flashback. That is basically what the whole thing you came to see this movie for is now going to happen. Yeah. I don't know. This is what I came to see the movie for. But flashback of the (laughs) abduction by extraterrestrials. Yeah. So in the flashback, he awakes inside a slimy cocoon, which is why the syrup triggered that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he manages to break out of the membrane of the cocoon. But then he finds himself in this weird zero gravity environment that's like inside the cylindrical enclosure. And there's other similar cocoons that look similar to a beehive, actually. It's very beehive Yes, mm-hmm. very beehive or wasp hive whatever. I don't know. Yeah, and then he's horrified to discover that one of the compartments contains the decomposing remains of a human body. Like he falls that looks into kind it. Of like William Defoe, honestly. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. doesn't look unlike that. So he makes his way to this area that's featuring what appear to be several alienoid spacesuits, but then mm-hmm. one moves and tries to grab him. Ah! So he flees, but then he's apprehended by these two extraterrestrials. And he's unwillingly dragged down corridors full of like weird terrestrial detritus, such as shoes and broken glasses, which doesn't bode well, really. No. And then he arrives in this exam room and the aliens basically strip him of his clothes. And then they like use this weird, like elastic. It's kind of like a food saver, but the material is thicker where they like vacuum seal it around him. Yeah, it's like and a it's big rubber this, sheet or something almost. Mm-hmm, and we like vacuum seal it to yeah. him. And you can kind of see through it, except for it's it's conveniently thicker around the crotch area. 
So uh-huh. you can't see through that area, just so you know. Yeah. So yeah. And then they even do that with his face, but then they like cut holes over one eye and his mouth. And then they shove this weird gelatinous, like honey-like substance into his mouth, which is pretty horrifying. And then his jaw is clamped open, mm-hmm. not unlike that's, Dwayne that's Barry. Worse. Yeah. Very Dwayne Barry. I'm sure that's part of where Dwayne Barry came from. But uh, although it's around the same time. Aside, well, aside from all, like this is very, with the exception of the stuff they stick in him, everything is super organic y. Yeah. But like they do put like this crazy, like industrial metal, like clamp thing in his mouth that has, it's almost like a snake for a toilet because then there's a hose that goes in between and they can see it like shooting down his throat. So like they're like giving him like a throat probe like intubating him basically yeah and then yeah and they jam something in his neck and then they attach tubes to both of those things and maybe are pumping stuff or p- taking stuff out yeah who knows and they, and they stick a big needle in his eye mm, i know it's so bad he's got a clamp to hold his eye open too so he has to look at it the whole time so that's super cool yeah, oh. yeah. these are not nice aliens no and then the next thing we see is he wakes up and he's in the hospital because the flashback ends and so this is from he had the freak out in the kitchen and they have taken him to the hospital because obviously after the alien stuff he obviously is naked in the gas station so yeah. right so everything i guess works out though because like you know waters is like well investigations closed there's no missing person so we ain't got no case right and blake is like oh because waters apparently has never had an unsolved case that's his big thing the reason why they wanted him here but this one is kind of unsolved because ufo is crazy right and blake is definitely kind of like that's all ufo and he's like no i'll come <laughs> back because something's going on like they're lying and when they slip up i'll be back to find out what it is and then he's mm-hmm. like you can come back from montana he's like i'll come back from the north pole if i have to and he drives <laughs> off he's my so. favorite character <laughs> he really is i think he's the best part of this movie to be honest when he sh- when he first shows up and meets with blake he has a little bit of a coal check thing going on. Okay, it's yeah. Like with, with the way he talks. And that could just be like the age of the actors. And like they have, they're similarly aged. They have, you know, not exactly similar, but like they played that kind of like type of character a lot in mm-hmm. their career kind of thing. So yeah, I definitely got a kind of a Darren McGavin coal check feel a little bit when he first meets Blake, when he first shows up at the place and looks at their pickup. I can see that for sure. Yeah. So then the next thing we see is Travis and he's hanging out with Dana's like cooking and Dana looks pregnant. Mm-hmm. She's got like a little baby bump. And then there's this little kid who's like having breakfast and Travis is all like, hey, and gives her a kiss and puts the kid and eat your breakfast. I got to go to work. So some time has passed. Yes. Everything looks hunky dory and she is pregnant. She's like, we'll find out she's like three months pregnant. So they've got at least one kid another one on the way. And then we will find out that it's been two and a half years because then as he's heading to work, he see, there's this whole thing about how they want to open up a motorcycle shop and whatever him and Mike. And blah, blah, yeah. Blah. Anyway, he's driving to work and he sees like a billboard for like a motorcycle. So then he turns around on the way to work and he drives up to the mountains because Mike Rogers is now living as a recluse in the woods. So he is divorced from his wife and not with his children because he has a wife and two kids in addition to his sister who lived in his house at the time. And he's living in the woods now by himself. Anyway, then he gets in the car with Travis and they drive up to the spot where the incident occurred and they reconcile. Oh, 
And, and then everybody's happy. And then we get a screen crawl that reads, Mike and Katie Rogers divorced in 1976. Mike worked in carpentry, construction, and house painting before accepting a job in 1992 to once again cut trees on the Mogollon Rim. Travis and Dana Walton live with their four children in Snowflake, Arizona, where Travis is foreman at a local mill. In February of 1993, Cyrus Gilson readministered a polygraph examinations to Travis Walton, Mike Rogers, and Alan Dallas, whose earlier tests proved inconclusive. This time, they all passed. <gasps> and Cyrus Gilson is the person who administered the test in the movie. And he actually is a real person. He works mm-hmm. in the Arizona Public Safety Department. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's all yeah. like true. Yeah. That's that weird timing, though, true. that they took this test for some reason in like February of 1993. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it doesn't like have anything to do with month anything before the movie came out. Just that random, doesn't... random timing. Yeah. You know how it is when they're randomly calling you up going, hey, want to take a polygraph test about that thing that happened 20 years ago? And you're like, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was only 18 years ago. But That's true. So yeah. You would fail the polygraph test because you'd be wrong. Oh, I guess if you believed it was 20 years, you'd be fine. Yeah, and I believe everything I say. I'm just wrong all the time. It's fine. <laughs> so before we get into the story, the Travis Walton. The real, story, the real the story. Real, the real story. The true facts. Let's actually talk about the movie just a little bit. Sure. Like what worked, what didn't work. I really like the cinematography, especially the nighttime stuff with the UFO. I thought that was really done well. They did make a very interesting choice of ufo being really organic even the ufo from the outside it's almost like broken magma kind of stuff on the bottom like very uh-huh. crusty, like yeah. earth kind of stuff going on and the inside is all like organic and gooey and gross and beehivey but they did a good job on the cinematography the set design was also very good they did set the place and time very well i think like when yes. we first joined the bar we get we get freddie fender and just like the music and that kind of stuff and just like yeah the sets are really yeah i think all that was done pretty well yeah I did think it was weird, the font choices they made for the credits, because we have Tracy Torme as the writer, and I think he's the co-producer on this as well, and all that kind of stuff. And so Torme has a little accent over the E, but every time his name appears, the fonts they chose for everything, it's that thing like old school where like you couldn't, the font couldn't show the accent over the E, so the accent is after the E, like just hovering in space. So it's it's almost, it doesn't look like an apostrophe, but it's definitely like after the name so it's kind of weird like dude you guys got like you couldn't modify that just make like a custom e for that at some point it was i thought that was weird but yeah and then the only other weird thing i think aside from like the a lot of stuff they changed which we'll talk about right after this is from a storytelling perspective rogers loses the job he they take they take away the government contract for the for the tree right after everything happens right and then they're already having trouble like they can't pay their mortgage the wife is always on him and he's like why are you always bugging me about money that kind of stuff like oh because we can't pay our bills we have all these kids and we We can't pay our mortgage yeah that's why i'm bugging you about money yeah, yeah that's why we're having this conversation yeah but then he goes and stays in a motel for like several days yeah i think where did that money come from it's got to be like a credit card or he borrowed money or something because clearly they're having marital problems right she doesn't want him yeah i don't know 75 credit cards were kind of hard to get that's true i don't know maybe he borrowed money from family or from someone yeah or like he knows the guy so the guy's letting him stay there because maybe because they do have a discussion about how like now the the 
like he's all the guys like all booked up because people have been calling to come to town because they heard the story on that kind of stuff. So uh-huh. yeah, I don't know. But then also strangely, like the next morning, he the, the first night he's at the motel, he gets up and like the reporters are all there. And then Whitlock is like right there sitting in his pickup truck. Like Whitlock was like, where did Whitlock come from? <laughs> like, was he in a hotel too? Like, is that his dad's hotel? Like, I don't know. Like, but where did he come from? And then, know. yeah, it's weird. And then he's with Rogers almost the entire rest of the movie. The other ones kind of fade away. But Whitlock is like always with him pretty much. Yeah, so. Whitlock is around a lot. It's kind of funny. He's kind of a weird character. I don't know. Yeah. Because he's like the religious one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's praying in church about, and you get a lot of hints, like we, because we get them telling the story about the UFO, but then later they're like, all, you know, we get like, oh, I told you they wouldn't believe this story, and then like Whitlock's in church going like, Lord, please forgive us for what we have done, and you're like, oh, mm, what did they do? What's this? You know, so yeah, it is interesting yeah. that the movie does show us Travis's perspective and makes it seem like this is what really happened, but like. There are a lot of hints in the movie, even from the the guys on the crew, that like this is just a fabrication. Yeah. If you ignore the flashbacks up until yeah. Travis reappears, you're like, yeah, they fucking killed him. <laughs> like, yeah, no, one hundred percent. Whether it was an accident, like a tree fell on him or something, like he's dead or something happened, and yeah. Yeah, because they do make a lot of little side comments about the story mm-hmm. and sticking to it and staying mm-hmm. together and a united front. And yeah, the first dialogue we get from Mike Rogers is like, we're sticking to the story no matter what. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, which is an interesting choice, just if we're meant to believe this is really an alien abduction. Yeah, maybe we're not meant to believe. Yeah. That. Well, on that, the movie does <laughs> differ from the book in regards to Walton's abduction experience, mm-hmm. for sure. Paramount Pictures decided that Walton's account was too fuzzy and too similar to other televised close encounters. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Weird. Put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> so they ordered screenwriter Tracy Torme to write a flashier, more provocative abduction story. And so that's where all like the organic stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. So, and then as I mentioned, both Sheriff Blake and Lieutenant Waters are fictional characters. The actual sheriff involved was Navajo County Sheriff Marlon Glepsby. That's the actual name of the sheriff who handled mm-hmm. the case. So in addition, David Whitlock, Greg Hayes, Bobby Cogdill are also fictional characters. Oh, okay. The only other real person is actually Alan Dallas. Okay. It was actually a seven-man crew. It was Rogers, Walton, Alan Dallas. Dallas's name is actually spelled in the movie, Dallas's name is spelt A-L-L-A-N. And then his last name is spelt. D-A-L-L-I-S. In real life, it's A-L-L-E-N. And then Dallas only has one L. Huh. D-A-L. And I'm wondering if that's like some legal shit they had to do. Probably. Probably. Because then the other people are John Goulet, Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson, and Steve Pierce are the other crew members. And so they are all cut out of the movie. And then Alan Dallas's name is changed. Well, not really changed, but spelled differently. And Kenneth Peterson is actually the one who called the police in real life. Okay. So, yeah. And then Travis Walton. Have you ever seen a picture of Travis Walton? I think he was born with that mustache. Yeah, I think so. To be honest, there is a photo of him supposedly from 1975, but it's credited 1976. 
by Mike Rogers, he looks exactly like he does like in 1993 when he's doing like promotion for the movie. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's like in his mid thirties. He yeah. looks like a douchebag. Anyway, so Travis Walton in the movie is very like he's very I'm the charming dreamer instead of like the douchey schemer. Like I want to open a motorcycle shop and we're gonna call it mt motors and that'll mm-hmm. be because it'll always be empty because we'll just sell out of motorcycles yeah that kind yeah. of thing yeah and he's climbing up the grating on the house to get to dana's bedroom window to give her donut i mean just stuff like that yeah right? like, and like oh. a, like a, some random girl is like working in the donut shop and travis rides by in his motorcycle and then she's like all oh, the, the lady who owns the shop is like so and so what are you doing she's like oh nothing mom and she's like putting donuts in a bag and then travis rides up the sidewalk on his motorcycle and the girl holds the bag out and he takes him and he's like thanks and she's like oh because travis is apparently so dreamy and wonderful it's very yeah anyway. yeah mm-hmm. not yeah, really he's definitely yeah. the he's the dreamy charming guy who's maybe a little kooky in town yeah yeah Walton's book, The Walton Experience, was re-released as Fire in the Sky to promote the book's connection to the film. No versions are currently in print. A cursory search found that used copies are actually pretty damned expensive. Actually, the Fire in the Sky copies from the movie are actually more expensive than the original 1978 Walton Experience books, which is kind of interesting. You can buy, and I'm assuming this is print-on-demand action, Versions directly from Travis Walton's website for $30 plus $5.95 shipping. <laughs> Although the website doesn't like it's been updated since 2019. The copyright hasn't been updated since 2016. But in the event section, there's some stuff from 2019. He has had some media stuff since then that is not on the website. So I'm not sure if the site is still working. So if you use your PayPal account to buy a $30 book and pay $5.95 shipping, I honestly don't know if you're going to get a book or not. So you could buy his documentary the movie apparently you could also buy at one point but was out of stock so yeah the original book however is commonly believed to have been ghostwritten by jerome clark who was an editor for the international ufo reporter so Mm -hmm. most people don't think travis walton wrote it yeah i mean most celebrity type people generally don't end up writing their own books and he's not really a slip but you know any kind of public figure who's not a writer you need someone to go in there and help you out look it up yeah so we're going to talk a little bit about the actual Travis Walton story and its validity. This is the kind of thing where when I was a kid in the 90s, every single UFO book had a chapter on Barney and Betty Hill, and then it had a chapter on Travis Walton. And I remember looking it up and like, you know, but the internet in the 90s was not what it was. There were definitely skeptics in the 90s, so I'm not saying there weren't. Really what I remember about the story is that his brother was super suspicious and there was a lot of accusations that maybe like he and his brother had perpetrated this on purpose. But I hadn't thought about Travis Walton in a long time because it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about. UFO researcher Philip J. Class considered Walton's story to be a hoax perpetrated for financial gain, and he discovered many discrepancies in the account of Walton and his co-workers. After investigating the case, Class reported that the polygraph tests were quote-unquote poorly administered, and that Walton used polygraph countermeasures such as holding his breath to kind of trick the machine. And Class uncovered earlier failed tests administered by an examiner who concluded that the case involved gross deception. So yeah. make of that what you will. Yeah. And note that in the movie, we don't ever never see Travis Walton take a lie detector test, but he actually took, well, he took several, 
but in real life he claims that they took one and he passed it perfectly Mm -hmm. so yeah and this is just a little bit of a tie-in for something that's going to come up on our patreon later next week in fact but i just wanted to mention it because i thought it was interesting while i was researching this and this is a quote from the skeptoid article which is from the skeptoid podcast we'll have a link yeah and it says apparently feeling the heat mike rogers proposed a new round of polygraphs for everyone to settle the matter under an arrangement in which if they passed philip class would pay for the exams and if they failed the ufo group would pay for them but the offer wasn't as fair as it appeared. It was only valid if class agreed to one particular examiner, a guy from San Diego who gave polygraph tests to plants to prove they have feelings too. Mm-hmm. So just put a pin in that. Cause we'll be talking about that in a little bit. Yeah. Next week. Yeah. If you're listening in real time. So, yeah. So in reality, It was Travis's brother-in-law, Grant Neff, who supposedly got the call from Travis. It was five days after Travis went missing. And Neff said he received a midnight phone call from Travis asking him to come pick him up at a payphone outside a gas station. Neff and Dwayne, who is Travis's brother, found Travis there and brought him home, but they did not tell the police. So Travis is a missing person. They find him, take him home, and do not bother to tell the authorities who are still out looking for Travis. So real good guys. The next day they did take him to a doctor in Phoenix that the ground saucer watch group wanted him to go see. And the doctor was supposed to examine him, but the doctor turned out to be a hypnotherapist. So I don't know if he actually examined him or not, but it sounds like maybe he didn't. Yeah. And Phoenix is like at least nearly three hours, depending on the the route you take almost be four hours from snowflake. So it wasn't like they were just like, oh, we're going to take you to a different doctor. They like, they made a trip with him uh-huh. to do that. So yeah, that was the better part. That was the better part of their day, honestly, because like three hour <laughs> one way doctor. Visit, oh yeah, that's a long. Way. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much all of it. Right. So obviously the police were unhappy to learn of Travis's reappearance from the media because that's how they learned. No one told them. <laughs> they did go dust the payphone for prints that Travis supposedly used to call Neff. They didn't find Travis's prints, but Neff did receive a call from that phone around the time he claimed. Also, while Travis was gone, apparently Mike Rogers and Dwayne, Travis's brother, spent most of their time giving interviews to UFO investigators rather than searching for Travis. So that's a little suspicious because they weren't out looking mm. for him. They were calling up all the UFO people they could call and... Well, there's no sense looking for him. They knew he got abducted by aliens. They saw it. (laughs) And when Travis was finally examined, he showed no signs of malnutrition or severe dehydration that one would show if you hadn't eaten or drunk anything in five days. I mean, the aliens have food. I mean, maybe. Oh, they didn't seem to be trying to keep him alive in those pods. Well, but that was fictionalized. We know that. So, because actually, Travis actually saw different type in real life. He actually described different types of aliens. It's one of those stories where, like, they're the they're the alien workers who are the greys, and then there are the Nordic aliens who are like look like people and are super handsome, and they're the ones who like talk to you and are nice to you. So, yeah, he had a very different story than what we see in the movie, mm-hmm. but also very similar to stories that were around in the zeitgeist around you. I mean, that's, that's probably because they're true, right? So everyone to have similar experiences. I mean, obviously, that's what, how that works. <laughs> sure. Yeah, or you'd okay. expect them to have similar stories because the same thing happened to them. So, uh, yeah. Okay. If they were all different, that would be totally suspicious because 
Like we talk about in X-Files, how many different kinds of aliens can you have, right? No, you're going to have like one main kind or at least, you know, a group that works together that look different. So mm-hmm. cognitive psychologist Susan Clancy argues that Walton was likely influenced by the NBC television movie, The UFO Incident. Which may sound familiar to people. It actually aired two weeks before his own claimed abduction. Remember, it aired on October 20th, 1975. Travis's abduction apparently occurred on November 5th, 1975. It was a highly advertised movie. So he actually does admit to having seen it. Although later when he's asked if he saw it, he's like, I think so. He doesn't know. So it's one of those kind of stories. That movie obviously dramatized the alien abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. And Clancy noted that the rise in abduction claims really went up after the movie aired. (laughs) And she cites classes conclusions that after viewing this movie, any person with a little imagination can now become an instant celebrity. Concluding that, quote, one of those instant celebrities was Travis Walton. In 1975, so like in, I think in December, it could have been late November. I'm not sure. I can't get an actual date on when the checks were written. But in the December issue of the National Enquirer, there are photos of Travis and crew, with the exception of Steve Pierce, who was not available, posing with checks they got from the National Enquirer for their UFO story. Travis Walton has a check for $2,500. And then the other members, the other six, including Pierce, who was not available for photos, shared an additional $2,500. So okay. $2,500 in today's money would be basically twelve and a half thousand dollars Ooh, that's so not a 12, bad payout no so basically ten thousand dollars of inflation since 1975 yeah not too shabby i mean not, not not super like i'm gonna live the rest of my life off that but i mean no but it's not a, definitely, i mean i would take twelve thousand dollars right now oh so, yeah 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 and when i did the inflation calculator i did it with 1975 and that comes up to be almost thirteen thousand dollars and then i did it with 76 because really this is like december of 75 or maybe late November. And that comes up to be $12,250. Like so somewhere in the range of like $12,500 roughly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So they did get some payout relatively quickly for that. So that is nice. On March 12th of 1993, the opening day of Fire in the Sky, Walton and Rogers, Mike Rogers, appeared on the CNN program Larry King Live. The episode also featured Philip J. Class remotely. So he was like on camera, but he wasn't in the studio with Larry King mm. and Travis Walton and okay. Mike Rogers, which was convenient for all of them because Larry King, he's he's trash. He's like Joe Rogan before Joe Rogan. He's like the 80s equivalent. He's garbage, honestly. Anyway, the segment... Is about what you would expect it to be. I actually watched it. Class's performance is not great. And to be honest, like it's typical of his age group and at the time period of where everything is very formal and sort of authoritarian. Class also worked on Project Blue Book. So he is affiliated with the government. So there's that aspect too. If you're like a UFO believer, you can throw that at him walton and rogers don't seem to be telling the same story at first when they're talking to larry king like rogers doesn't even seem to be on the same page as far as what they're talking about but then once class comes in they obviously get super confident and they've obviously had some coaching they've also had a fat paycheck from a movie and they're arguing against an old man who's not in the same room 
and they start attacking mm-hmm. him. They're smirking all the time. They're using one-liners. They're making false statements that you know could not be fact-checked in real time, and that obviously later no one would bother checking because if you write up like, oh, they said this and it was false, like that's not it's not going to compete with what was on national television. Right. So, it's still a problem we have today. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just like total, like just like, like, like total personal that. attacks on class and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So class actually gets mad at one point and cusses because Ooh. Rogers is just making like shit up. So yeah. And then several years later, 15 years later, in fact, on July 1st, 2008, Walton appeared on a Fox game show that was called The Moment of Truth. And this was a garbage TV show. Garbage, garbage, garbage. It basically consisted of it was like Jerry Springer, but with a lie detector. Uh, okay. But where people would come on and they would ask you questions about your life. And then you would get to move up. So it was almost like want to be a millionaire kind of thing too. Like you would, you would move up the path and they'd ask you like, do you want to stop and take home your 10,000, 50,000, $100,000? Or do you want to keep going? But once you were lying, then you were out. You didn't get oh, shit. Okay. So it's one of those kind of stories, so right? So if you're good at lie detector tests, this is a good game show for yeah. you. But if you're but not. But it's all about people who are like, oh, I slept with your brother. And just like all these kind of like super lurid stories on the show. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was that kind of show. Anyway, yeah. Travis Walton was on it on July 31st, 2008. And he was asked if he was in fact abducted by UFO on November 5th, 1975. And he said, yes. And the polygraph said that you are lying. <laughs> so. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. I mean, this basically just lie detectors don't prove anything, right? It doesn't prove that he's lying because it doesn't prove that he was telling the truth when he passed one previously. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it also just proves that money has always been a thing with this story because mm-hmm. obviously he's on there trying to get money. And then didn't, I think he was at the $100,000 level and that's when oh. he got the fail and boom. So, yes, there is a Travis Walton, the true story of Travis Walton, which is a 2015 documentary, which you can buy on his website as well. I didn't see how much that one cost. I didn't use the little pull down menu to add it to my cart. Um, I did not buy anything. I was just want to see how much things cost and how much they were shipping or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you to actually select the items and it'll tell you at the bottom how much your total charge will be. That one is still available. Like I said, the movie is no longer available. And then on the January 29th, 2019 episode of Skeptoid, they offered a second possible explanation for the Travis Walton story. So the one that Tori referenced earlier was actually episode 94, which was like almost 15 years ago. Skeptoid has been around yeah. for a long time. And they talk about in that one, like how his brother and Mike may have helped him fake it because Mike wanted to get out of his contract and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that is something else that we haven't brought up yet, but we can talk about that shortly too. But there is possible another source for his story that a listener sent into Brian Dunning, the host of Skeptoid. And that story is, this is the quote from the reader who sent this to Brian Dunning. Compare Walton's story to the young hero in Robert Heinlein's 1958 sci-fi novel, Have Space Suit, Will Travel. Both have high IQs, refer to themselves as a country boy and see their future in electronics. Both encounter a flying saucer at night, are blasted unconscious by a blue beam, wake up lying on their back in a wedge-shaped room, are groggy and don't know where they are or how they got there, think they might be in a hospital, escape from the room, and go around a curved corridor, have the run of the ship, find an object they intend to use the weapon, enter the control room of the saucer, describe it as having hemispherical domed ceiling like a planetarium, are amazed when star images appear all around them, 
exit the craft by passing through an airlock, are forced down and immobilized by humans who work with the aliens, are returned to Earth many days later, are dropped off on the side of the road late at night, walk into town, a phone call for assistance is made, and both are shocked when they learn that it is not the day they thought it was. That actually is a lot of stuff. And obviously a lot of that doesn't match the movie, but because a lot of things were changed in the movie. So this actually right. matches with the story that Travis Walton actually told in his book. That is incredibly similar for sure. I mean, obviously you're going to have similarities in any UFO abduction story, because as we said, everyone's pulling from the same well of UFO abduction mm-hmm. options, right? Yes. But yeah. And most accounts say that Travis Walton was into UFOs before the event happened, possibly was a sci-fi reader. So may have read the story. I technically never heard of that Robert Heinlein book. I have read some of Robert Heinlein books. I'm not like a super Robert Heinlein fan. So the fact that I've never heard of it is not necessarily a saying on anything, but there is a lot of detail in there. So to be honest, having seen and heard the real Travis Walton speak at least at two different points in his life in 1993 and in something that will come up later, like just a year ago in January, 2021, I'm not sure about the whole high IQ thing. Anyway, I think, but I think IQ is fake. I think well, I yeah. well yeah it's, it's like lie detectors it's basically, it's how it's yeah. how you well you take certain types of tests yeah. that's all it is yeah I mean I was tested at 171 in the second grade that was a that was a fucking nightmare because then I got I tested in the second grade they decided I should be in the eighth grade and put me in the eighth grade and that was bad because they just like dumped me in the eighth grade which horrible I got put back in the third grade and then I had a food fight and got kicked back in the second grade it was awesome and then later I was actually tested again in the eighth grade and got 169 so apparently I'm a super genius although a lot of people <laughs> would debate that so <laughs> I mean you're yeah. a very smart person I just think IQ is nonsense but that's me yeah personally. yeah yeah it's, yeah I don't know I don't care honestly but anyway as I mentioned on January 19th 2021 Travis Walton appeared on episode 1597 of the Joe Rogan experience. Also, I can't believe you even sat through any of this. I refuse (laughs) to even acknowledge this. I will be honest. This is how dedicated I am. This is my literal first experience of the Joe Rogan experience. Like I know of Joe Rogan. I've heard of Joe Rogan. I've obviously heard little clips of him because you can't avoid not hearing his voice at some point. I haven't. Anything that I know never. Like in a way where I would know what he sounded like. And I've never actually watched like anything more than maybe like a couple of seconds or just heard his voice. I have seen commercials of Fear Factor from like whatever year that was he was doing that show. I remember seeing those commercials. That's a terrible fucking show. He was on that. He was like the host. He was the host. He was the host of Fear Factor. I just know that he used to be a comedian and then now paid an inordinate amount of money and i think that is the extent of my joe rogan experience except for having to hear about him all the goddamn time and how he's the best podcaster and he's he's making millions and millions of freaking dollars doing ridiculous interviews and being a jerk who spreads misinformation on our main podcast which most of you probably listen to if you're a patreon supporter it would be weird if you weren't honestly if you weren't listening to the real podcast and you're just a patreon supporter that would be freaky but hey if you are glad to have you well yeah we're slapping yeah our podcast was like anchor which was purchased either right before we started or right after we started it was probably like in process like that by spotify and of course spotify has paid joe rogan like a gazillion dollars to be exclusive to them or whatever like that when i went to go post our most recent episode there's a little thing you have to go through and read about how spotify is all about like we're gonna make sure that truth and offensive podcasts and all all this stuff you have to read through and what will happen if you have podcasts that like tell lies or hurt people or whatever yeah weirdly not to (laughs) not to joe rogan who doesn't have to worry about whether or not he tells lies because spotify doesn't give a shit 
but yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway but i have to make sure that i know that i can't be doing that because obviously yeah. i'm not bringing in thousands and thousands of ad dollars yeah, to spotify exactly but anyway i did watch three clips which are about 30 minutes altogether i really would not recommend them they were on youtube the full episode is just over two hours but I refused to create a Spotify account. Honestly, no, we are through Anchor. That's separate. So I wasn't allowed to even try and listen to it. Like I could not listen to it without creating a Spotify free account. And I was like, no, I'm not going to because I don't want to be on your thing, even though like we're through Anchor. Mm-hmm. But they are still separate, even though they're owned by the same company. So yeah, I listened to the three clips. Travis Walton is boring. He's boring. So at least 2021 Travis Walton is boring. 1993 Travis Walton made me so freaking angry that we put off recording this episode for a week because (laughs) I was so angry that I needed time to process how angry I was with Nick needed to work it out before he could get on here. He would have just been a frothing. Watch that Larry King interview and you just, (laughs) oh, mm, 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 I was so angry. Like I say, class does not come off great. He's that he's an older gentleman. He at that time period, it was like, you know, this is how things work. And I'm going to tell you how things work. That kind of, he, he does not come across well at all. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make what he's saying is false, but he does not come across well at all. But Travis Walton and Mike Rogers, they made me so angry, so freaking angry. Anyway, like I said, he lacks the swagger of the Larry King interview. Some of that could be the fact that he's older now. He's like 70, I think. Well, okay. He's like 22 when this supposedly happened. That is one caveat. I actually need to email Skeptoid because in that original episode, they say that he's a teenager, but oh, Travis right, Walton but was actually was 22. Early 20s, yeah. Yeah, he was 22. So that is one thing. It, that's early in Skeptoid thing. I'm surprised no one's actually brought that up because he's really good about when people bring up corrections. He'll actually state the correction both on the transcript and in the podcast as well. So maybe I need to email him. But anyway, he's boring. Again, that might be because he's old. I listened at one and a half speed and then a second time at two times speed. And both times I was like, come on, grandpa, like get to the point, like spit it out. Like it's like he's I don't know. He's old enough to be my dad, but it was just like, yeah, come on, come on. Anyway, <laughs> also to that lack of swagger, he when he's telling the story, it sounds like he's making up the story as he goes along. Like he's talking to Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is asking him questions and it sounds like he's making it up on the fly. Like like he like he doesn't know what the next word out of his mouth is going to be. And. It sounds like this is the first time he's telling it, which is strange because he's lived with this story for almost 50 years now at this point. He's told it. Right. It should be like he's told it it so many times that it should just be like, here, I'm telling this story again. And what I think that is, I think he's playing to the audience. Like Joe Rogan offers an audience that has probably never heard the story before. Or if they have, they've maybe heard it like, you know, not from him. A lot of them probably weren't even born when Fire in the Sky came out which is mm-hmm. scary. It came out in 93. Um, oh, so old. <laughs> but maybe he thinks that if he sounds too polished, it would be taken as he's repeating like a practice story. And so it'll sound fake. But if that's what he was going for, I think he way overcorrected because it sounds like he doesn't mm. like, he's just totally making it up. Again, that's my opinion. Listening to him speak. At one point, Rogan asked him if he had heard of the Barney and Betty Hill story at the time. And he responds, uh, I probably had. And then moves on. <laughs> and in the past, he has admitted to having seen the UFO incident on television. As we mentioned, it aired two weeks before his alleged abduction. Yeah, he's almost 70. But mm-hmm. like, this is something that you have talked about and been asked about several times. Like, it's an easy answer. It's a yes or no answer. And it was just it was a textbook case of distancing himself from a fact. Like, I can just move past this. 
the audience is not going to have, they're probably going to have like cursory knowledge at best. They're not going to know all the details. I can just move past it with an interviewer who is only giving me softballs at best mm-hmm. and it'll just drift off. No one will care. But it's kind of like, again, it's like, it's like almost like you're making shit up, dude. So, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, I did find out there is a movie coming out, I guess. And I don't know if this is, this is probably going to be like a direct-to-video thing. It is called Alien Abduction, A True Story. It is in post-production and does not have a release date. But it is a documentary. Huh. And the tagline for it reads, Travis Walton will finally explain his otherworldly experience accurately away from Hollywood's molested presentation of Fire in the Sky. Walton's experience and the subsequent effects on his life will be illuminated, perhaps for the first time. Yeah, that doesn't sound biased at all. And I'm like, okay, you had a 1978 book that gave you the option to tell your story. You had a 2015 documentary where I'm thinking you got to tell your story. You've mm-hmm. undoubtedly done a gazillion interviews where you could probably tell your story, but I guess none of those let you tell the real story. The movie was probably being made when he was on joe rogan at first i was really confused because i thought that joe rogan was this year like 2022 and then i realized it was a year ago and so i was like oh that's why he's on joe rogan because his movie's coming out but it was a year ago and so i'm thinking it's a little early to have been a promotional thing especially since this does not have a date being released but i'm thinking it might have actually been like a fundraising thing like get my name back out there that people interested in me and then we can get some money to make this movie i don't know but yeah. In case you guys yeah. hadn't guessed, I think Travis Walton is full of shit. Yeah. So I'm curious, so, what do you think happened? Do you have a theory on that? Or do you just think it's I all nonsense think and you just made we, it up? We hinted at it. We hinted at it a little bit. The contract that they had to clear the brush or these like small trees, that kind of thing, basically to clear the area in the mountains that they had with the government. They were behind schedule. They had already got one extension to do it. If they didn't finish it, they were going to be fined. Rogers was already being fined by the government because he's already extended past what he was doing. So like every day they did not finish, they were fining him, which meant because they would get paid when they were done. So they were basically taking away money from what they were going to get because they were going over time. The only thing in the contract that would let them extend it would be an act of God. And so I think they lied because that way they get what actually happened. They were able to completely get out of the contract and they were then paid for the work they had done. Oh, because they were, they were technically losing money every day they were working at this point. Right. So the longer they, even if they finished, like, obviously you're thinking like, well, I want to finish my job, but they weren't, it wasn't like, like, Oh, I I'm, I'm working longer. So I'm going to get paid more hours. It was like, no, you, he totally underbid on the job. It's a government contract. You have to bid for it, right? You say, like, it's going to cost me this much money to do it, which is why he has, like, all these ragtag people working for him, right? Like, we, we kind of see that in the movie. In real life, it was kind of the same way. It, was like, it wasn't like he had, like a, like, a bunch of employees that all went out and did this work. It was, like, a bunch of my friends, and we're all going to go, and we're going to make some money. And so every day they were working, they were still going to get the same amount of pay at the end. So they're basically working for free at one point. But then because they'd already had an extension... They were now losing money every day they had to work this job. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I remember hearing about the contract thing. I don't yeah. know that I ever explicitly understood it that way, which makes it even more convincing that he would really want to get out no. of that. Yeah, you will read they were being fined. But the fine was that we're, we're basically deducting from your 
mm-hmm. what you're gonna your payout gonna get. So once they were able to get out of the contract because act of God, act of aliens, they did eventually get paid out. And so they were they didn't have to finish the work. They got a paycheck and then obviously got another paycheck from National Enquirer yeah. and then got a book to lots of suspicious timing. Like even in this movie, there's weird suspicious timing of like, like again, why did he go to the motel? Apparently he went to the motel because he was trying to get away from like all the reports like that. Didn't want them with this. But then they go into town every single day and people are there. So why are you, you don't have money. Why are you in a motel? Two and a half years later, Travis goes, and this part is real. Travis goes and reconciles with Rogers in real life. That two and a half year time span matches up really well with a book getting ready to come out. Ah. So whether that was like, Hey, I want to clarify some story with you. You might be hearing some stuff. Maybe there's a paycheck involved. Rogers and Alan Dallas are the only people who are mentioned in the movie. In real life, they're the only people who also retook the test, probably because the test was all for movie promotion. And so we don't care about the other dudes because they're not in the movie. So who gives a shit? So I don't know what the deal is with that. But Where do you think Travis was for those days he was missing? Because I've heard stuff I, I remember hearing stuff about his brother hiding him somewhere or something but i don't have like any clear idea yeah of where i, that might I have been. don't know the weirdness with the motel i'm like was the whole motel thing so travis would have a place to stay maybe maybe and just never left the motel right like they snuck him in and then he stayed there the whole time i don't know and they just brought because, him cheeseburgers because, or something. because in the movie when mike gets the call he's back at home and that's mm-hmm. the first night he has come back home. His wife comes out. He's with the kids. They're watching. Well, they're watching the static on the TV because it's like super late. He's got the, the two daughters with him. And she's like, are you planning on staying tonight? Because I guess maybe he'd been going home to visit, but wasn't sleeping there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I think so. If that's all right with you. And she's like, I don't care because they're not having a great marriage at this point. Mm-mm. They're going to get divorced a year later. <laughs> so, but then the phone call, she picks it up. She's like, stop calling. It hangs up. And she's like, we've been getting all kinds of weird calls. Now they're calling at night. And then it rings again. And he's like, let me get it. So he gets it. And it's a collect call from someone named Travis Walton. And she's like, just hang up. And he's like, no, I'll take it. So he takes the collect calls and it's Travis. I help. And so it's like, that's super suspicious too. The night you come back from the motel, suddenly Travis reappears. So just from the, I don't know how much of that is real with the whole motel stuff, but even in the story, that seems super suspicious. Yeah. Well, in real so, life, he, he got he called Neff. He called his right. brother-in-law. But either so he way, didn't call Mike. But yeah. yeah. But either way, if something like that was going on, are they hinting yeah. at that in the movie? Like, oh, this is what really happened. He was just in a motel the whole time. So. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I don't know where he was, what he was doing. I'm guessing Neff must be Travis Walton must have a sister or something if it's his brother-in-law because yeah, he he wasn't married to Roger's sister. Yet. Yeah. No, it's got to be someone on name his too. side. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't know where he was, but I don't think he was abducted by aliens. Yeah. I, I think it was think just so like, either. we need a story. You know, it would be a good story. Why don't you hide for a while? And, I wonder uh, why the believe- rest of the crew went along with it though. Cause they would have had money? to have. Yeah. I guess that's, I mean, I guess money because works, right? They're Money's getting paid out of that contract, right? Oh, that contract true. is paying them too. They know every day they work that contract, they're losing money. Yeah. And also true. they're not able to go do something else. Because they're locked into this contract. If they if they skip out on the contract, they're not, they're not going to get paid at all because they'll be forfeiting the contract. They'll break the contract. So they can't just stop because they won't get paid at all. They can't move on to get other employment because they have to go do this job. And then every day they do this job, they're technically losing money. 
So yeah, no, I can see that. Okay, that's incentive. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I definitely when I was a kid, I definitely wanted to believe in Travis Walton's story, but you know, once I was an adult, I was like, oh, that's nonsense. But yeah. It sounds like nonsense, but at least, and especially the whole, like, we're going to make sure every UFO reporter hears about this immediately. Like, that definitely seems like trying to drum up some extra cash, maybe. As a movie, this is kind of like a mediocre X-Files episode, basically. Yeah, it's not, it's not the most exciting thing, for sure. It's more exciting at the beginning when he's missing and you're like, what's going on? But like you said, it would have been more interesting if they had killed him with the tree and then had to hide the body (laughs) or something. That would be more entertaining. But unfortunately, well, that makes it hard to come back, though, unless you're like, (laughs) he's risen. He's risen. Yeah, no, that's a different. You have to come back in three days for that instead of five days. It works. That's a murder mystery. That's not a UFO abduction story. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he could have totally gone the cult thing and came back in three days and then started a religion. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I yeah, obviously lies as money. Um, I I I will say I honestly do not believe that they had any idea that it would be a thing. Now, I think yeah, it was like, oh, I don't. I think yeah. it was a quick. Let's get out of this contract. We might get some. I mean, the Inquirer had been advertising. Apparently, the Inquirer had a hundred thousand dollar thing they were going to give out for people who had like totally conclusive proof of UFOs. Mm-hmm. They took a polygraph test through the National Enquirer, but they worked out a deal that if they, because you'd have to, everyone would have to pass for them to get this, the proof kind of thing. They worked out a deal with the Enquirer that if they didn't pass, the Enquirer wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. They got basically $5,000 from the Enquirer. So they didn't get 100000 So you can maybe figure out that connection there. But yeah, like we, we, we're getting our money from the government. We can move on with our lives. We got a, nice check from the national Enquirer, maybe some other little i can go county fair i mean who knows right what their long-term goal was short term i think was just we got to get out of this contract and then yeah hey, ufos yeah, are popular get some extra cash over here yeah. and just do a couple you know, interviews you know, maybe they were like hey maybe they'll make a tv movie about us you know who knows but, like yeah the ufo incident yeah. yeah yeah i definitely don't think that they expected it to go on as long or be as popular or have as much scrutiny as no. it ended up having whereas i think betty hill her life's goal was to be a ufo abductor. oh yeah and she made the i mean travis walton makes the rounds too but yeah oh, betty too. Hill yeah was, no yeah. He, yeah yeah i think he still goes to ufo conventions and stuff yeah i honestly i need to go i didn't go back and double check he it looked i think he might be wearing the same suit that he wore in the larry king interview that he was wearing with joe rogan i could be wrong <laughs> he might but be. yeah he still got that mug and mustache mm, man I don't know. I don't. I'm. I'm not anti mustache, but there's just something, and just I don't know. He just, he just rubs me. And then like I was like, well, I saw him in '93, 18 years later. Like okay, and so I went looking for photos of him like at that time because obviously the image we get of him in the movie is totally like all oh, idealized and you know whatever. And so I was like, what are some contemporary photos of him look like? And he's he's got that. He he looks exactly like he looks in that fucking Larry King interview. That photo is supposedly 1975, credited 1976 from Mike H. Rogers. So I don't know. But yeah. And I did see there's some photos of him in the National Enquirer as well. And he's got the mustache. He does look a little bit younger, maybe, but not too much. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you would hope, you know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But I mean, some people just always look like. But yeah, he looked like, yeah, he looked like he was weird. I think he probably came out with that mustache and looked like, yeah. <laughs> so, 
anyway. It's like dad is a baby. Anyway. Yeah. Like we talked about Jack Black. Jack Black was Jack Black when he came. I mean, obviously he was, but when he came out of the womb, you're like, that's Jack Black. And then he's been <laughs> he's been Jack Black ever since. Like, you know, the hair changes color. Sometimes he has facial hair, sometimes he doesn't, but you're like, that's Jack Black. So yep. Yep. yeah. You were always like, you know, little five-year-old Travis Walton was playing in the play yard. People were like, that's Travis Walton. He's gonna get abducted by UFO. Check out that mustache. So <laughs> yeah. Where'd you get that mustache, Rabbit? Aliens. Oh, sweet. So yeah. Yep, that's fire in the sky. Yep. Very ambiguous story. No one can really tell if it's true or not. And so, yeah, I don't think we'll ever know no. if it's just complete made up hokey. Yeah. No, yeah, no. I still obviously have some residual anger. But no, I mean I would too. That's why I don't watch Joe Rogan. My <laughs> blood pressure does not What's allow the thing? for it. It wasn't the Joe Rogan that I watched the Joe Rogan first and was like, oh. And then I found out about the Larry King interview and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's available. And it was, and I watched it and I got so angry. <laughs> um, I should have known because like I said, Larry King was awful. He is one of those people who just like was allowed to perpetrate horrendous things on society through his talk show and interview show, whatever you want to call it. And just like propped up a lot of bad people. And uh, yeah, and Joe Rogan does the same thing. So, yeah. And so does Oprah if we want to go on that route. But anyway, yeah. So Yep, fire in the sky. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And if you want to tell us where you think Travis Walton was hiding for those five days, feel free to hit us up on social media. I would love to hear your theory. Yeah. And if you do want to watch the Larry King interview, there will be links in the show notes. Here's some advice. If watching it makes you angry, do not then go to the comments. Because they will just amplify it. Yeah. Because you Good will wonder how humanity can be so dumb. Anyway, yes. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm still angry. So I thought I was over it, but it's just all coming back. <laughs> yeah, me back. That's my secret cap. I'm always angry. <laughs> always I love angry. That movie. I love that Mark movie. Is so good. I know Joss Whedon is a douchebag, but that movie's <laughs> really good. Mark Ruffalo is dreamy. He's great, but also just like, I don't know, that movie makes me happy. That's what I want a superhero movie to be, DC. I'm looking at you. It's like, you know, trying to calm so you don't turn into Hulk because I'm angry all the time from Travis Walton. And so, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> well, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We appreciate you. Yes. You do not make us angry. You do not. So. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Right, Nick's gonna go meditate now and get his blood pressure back down. I'm just gonna go look at pictures of Mark Ruffalo. And then yeah. there you go. Yeah. Anyway, I want to rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Episode production, design, and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by the Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is, is still, still out, out there. there.
There are apparently some changes between the original version of the Travis Walton experience and the Fire and Sky version. From what I understand, some of that is a transcript that he reportedly remembers being told by one of the... No, actually, sorry, that's communion. I'm confusing my people who made shit up. <laughs> sorry. Okay. That was something else that I did not mention in communion. So anyway, I'm messing up my people who make shit Uh-oh. up. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It is. There's a lot of, yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah. And we're doing it very back to back. So it's all in your brain roaming around. 